Morning, everybody. <clears throat> Please uh, turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles and uh, come to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9. Uh, Matthew, the, the gospel, is beautiful picture of Jesus that Matthew paints for us is, uh, has been our home for the last five weeks. We've just been slowly kind of moving through Matthew chapters 8, chapter 9 is where we're at this morning. And we're in this series called Amazed because there's this, this sense of amazement that happens to us. Like as we listen to the way Matthew tells the story of Jesus, like it's just kind of story after story of like, Jesus, you are awesome, right? I mean, I hope, I hope we have that sense of just like, man, this, this man, this Jesus is absolutely awesome. And that there's something inside of us where just amazement starts to well up and it leads us to worship. That's what amazement does is it just ah, kind of overwhelms us um, and, and leads us to just say thank you, God, and leads us to worship. So my hope is that uh, as, as we look at this scripture this morning, um, if you need a Bible, there are red ones around you, page 886 in those red Bibles. And uh, we'll just dive in. Matthew chapter 9, uh, the first eight verses. Here we go. Jesus stepped into a boat and crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. Now when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. Jesus, you are awesome, right? That's what they're feeling. They were filled with awe, and they praised God and led them to worship that God had given such authority to a man. So, um, so maybe some of you are like reading this story, hearing this story for the very first time. Uh, that's cool. Like we have, we have folks uh, across the church who are just exploring faith in Jesus, who are learning the Bible, interacting with the Bible for the very first time. Uh, I had a guy uh, like this who, he's in his 60s, started coming uh, to the church, and he's been, he's been reading the Gospel of Matthew for the first time. Like he's never read the Bible before, and so it's cool. We, as a church, we have to give him his first Bible. And uh, this last week, called and talked to him and said, um, hey, how's it going? He said, man, I'm way ahead of you for Sunday sermon. Like, what, what do you mean? He's like, well, I've just been reading through Matthew, and I, like, I read the story we're going to talk about next week. I was like, fantastic. Can I come over, and can you give me some of your notes? Because it might help with my sermon prep. Um, but this is just fantastic, that we have people in our church who are at every place along their spiritual journey. I mean, some of you have been, you, you've heard this story hundreds of times, and you've heard dozens of sermons on it, and you've read it to your kids or your grandkids, and that's beautiful. I hope there's something new for you. Some of you, maybe this is, maybe this is the first time, and that's a fantastic thing, too. I love that aspect of the community of faith. So, if you're like, if you're, if you're there, if you're hearing it for the first time, or if you were going to tell the story to your kids or grandkids, any child could understand the story. Right? I mean, kids, you know what the story is about, right? I mean, it, it's, it's very simple. The, 
Jesus is powerful. And, and Jesus fixes broken things. Like, that's, that's, that's the story. It's, it's really, really beautiful, really simple. And like right there on the surface, there's this, there's this meaning that anybody can grasp. Um, and one of the cool things about the Bible is it's a bit like walking through an art gallery. I can walk through an art gallery, and I have no knowledge of art at all, but I can appreciate beautiful things. And the Bible's kind of the same way. It's like, without a whole lot of background, without a whole lot of knowledge, we can just, like, we can appreciate who Matthew is saying Jesus is through this passage, right? But if I was going to walk through an art gallery with an art connoisseur, with Jesse, right? If I was going to walk through an art gallery with Jesse, and he was going to point out to me, like, this picture that I'm like, oh, this is, this is really cool. He's going to say, but yeah, do you see, like, the tones and the shades? I don't even know the language to use. Um, but could point out, like, an expert or whatever could sort of point out deeper layers of beauty. And so that's what we kind of want to do, is just say, man, simple story. Jesus is powerful. Jesus has authority, and that's fantastic. But there are, if we'll take time to look, there are these layers, these textures that just make this so beautiful, so much more clear. So here's what we'd like to do, is just kind of uh, unpack the story a little bit. One, one simple one simple tool that can help us whenever you're reading the Bible can help you kind of say, okay, God, what do you want me to get from this and how can I apply it to my life? One simple tool, because the hope, I, I hope you're with me, the hope is that our spiritual life would not be coming to church on a Sunday morning and our only interaction with the Bible is listening to a pastor talk about it. I mean, I really hope that that's, I mean, that's not like the goal of what we're doing. The goal of what we're doing as a church is to hopefully that what we do on Sunday mornings equips us with tools so that we can actually go back to Scripture on our own and in our communities, missional communities, and learn together and like hear God speak to us through it. Is that cool? So one, one tool that can be really helpful is when you read a passage of Scripture like this, sometimes I'll print it out or, or just pull it up on a document, copy and paste it into a document, and then you just start to highlight or circle words that are repeated. Because the author, Matthew, is wanting to communicate something about Jesus through this story. And so you just look at, okay, what are the clues? What are the, the words that are repeated here? And if you're going to do that with this story, uh, one of the words that is repeated is the word authority. Authority. Um, so you can, in your Bibles, go ahead, you can circle or underline or whatever the word authority. Draw attention to that. You have permission from your pastor not that you need it, to write in your Bibles. Your Bibles are a tool for you to use to learn to know Jesus better. And so how cool would it be if we had to get a new Bible every 10 years? Would that be awesome? If like we made it our goal to just like mark up our Bible so much with so many notes of things we're learning as, as disciples of Jesus, we had to get a new one every 10 years. So write in your Bibles, use it as a tool. The word authority is, is there's something key that Matthew wants us to know about Jesus as an authority figure. Now, how many of you, when I say the words Jesus as an authority figure, had some hair on the back of your neck to stand up a little bit? Because you fight authority, and authority always wins, right? Well, John Cougar Mellencamp fans, maybe anybody. How many of you, like, we, we talk about this quite a bit, like, have this kind of like, anytime there's an authority figure, there's something inside you that says, no, no, I'm not going to do what they say, right? You're not the boss of me, um, right? How many of you have that? You're not going to raise your hands, somebody tells you to, do you think you are telling me to raise my hand? Um, so some of us have authority issues. So, so thinking about Jesus as an authority figure, we're not comfortable with that. We don't like that. Um, 
I've used some of these signs in the past. Here's some new ones. I don't think I've ever used these before. But right, thank you for driving carefully. I'll see your driving carefully sign. Right? Um, Next one. I like this one. No feeding. Um, I don't know how many of you were alive in 1984. But in 1984, there was this revolutionary commercial by Macintosh during the Super Bowl, 1984. And uh, what Macintosh did, Apple today, was absolutely brilliant. And, um, and they tapped into this inner sort of rebellious impulse inside of us. And what marketing does, what marketers do, is they take these, they take these impulses inside of us and they hijack them and they stamp their logos onto them and feed it back to us and say, aha, you need to buy this product. Every time you watch TV, every time you take in a, an advertisement, that's what they're doing to you. So here's an example. In 1984, during the Super Bowl, 1984, um, there's, this, there's this commercial that, again, it, it like, it's so grainy, like old technology and stuff, but it was, it was crazy cutting edge. So the, the, the feel you get as a commercial starts is just drab and like everything's gray, there's no color, there are these drone-like people, they have no expressions, they have no personality, they're just sort of like walking like in lockstep with each other. They're sitting like mindlessly looking at a screen, listening to some talking head on the screen talk, go on and on about authority and, you know, all of that. So, that's the tone. Now, into this comes, like, the Savior, right? So, they, this woman comes running in, and she's nothing like all these other people. She's, you know, sort of dressed in bright colors and, 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 and kind of rebellious, and she's holding this sledgehammer, right, this symbol of liberation, and she comes in and she runs past the security guards and they're trying to chase her down, but they can't catch her. She grabs the sledgehammer, she spins around, throws the sledgehammer through the screen, and as it shatters the screen, this, oh, this you know, burst of like white light comes in and everybody's like sort of awakened from their like... <clears throat> Uh, you know, from their trance that they were in, and up on the screen pops the image of our salvation, Macintosh, and the, the famous, famous line that says, and find out why 1984 won't be like 1984. Oh, what are they doing? Like they're saying, if you, like, if you want to be like everybody else with these mindless drones, buy a PC, right? But if you want to be rebellious, if you, if you want to stick it to the man, buy a Macintosh. This is exactly what they're saying. They've made buying an apple an act of subversion. And is there any symbol, and they deny that they chose this with any sort of spiritual relevance, but is there any symbol that, that pictures like human rebellion more than the apple with a bite taken out of it? Right? I mean, the symbol of lust and rebellion and wanting something. You have bought into that if you have an iPhone. Right? <laughs> You do. I've bought into it. I have an iPhone. Like, we, we've bought into this, like, oh, we're going to be different from everybody else. We're going to be different just like everybody else. What happens when the man becomes the one who is sticking it to the other? I don't know. So um, this is this inner rebellion. Um, and so when Jesus, when he's an authority figure, we, we have this, this, this pushback maybe, that we don't, we don't like to see Jesus that way. Um. But a couple questions we can ask as we, we think about what Matthew is telling us is how does Jesus use his authority? Because I would argue Jesus uses his authority different from anyone that we've ever experienced. And we can ask questions like, okay, 
Who benefits from the way Jesus uses his authority and who's really ticked off at Jesus? Those are, those are really great questions because it, it, it will lead us um, in, in, to follow Jesus' pattern. How does he use his authority? Who's offended by it and who benefits from it? So let's, let's just sort of walk through this passage. So Jesus, he steps out of the boat. They've crossed the lake. They come back to his hometown. And some men brought to him this paralyzed man. We have no idea um, like what his condition was. We don't know how much of his body was paralyzed, but apparently he couldn't walk. So they, you can picture them sort of laying on a, a bit of a gurney sort of thing, a, a kind of a stretcher. And these men carry their friend to Jesus, to the presence of Jesus. Um, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. Now, if on your outline, right, um, we were just going to take a minute and everybody's going to write a couple sentences, a, a short essay question, number two pencils ready, um, about what faith is. How would, you, how would you describe that? You're going to describe faith. This is what faith is. What would you say? I'm guessing most of us would say something like, well, I believe something. That where does faith live? Faith lives in our heads. Right? I, 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 I have faith, which means I believe that something is true. So faith is internal. It's personal. It's not observable. It's just, it's inside me. And I have faith. So when Jesus says, or when Matthew says of Jesus, he saw their faith, it's almost like he got his categories crossed up, right? How, how did he see their faith? How did he see into their heads and to see what they believe? But Jesus, Matthew says Jesus saw their faith. And so it calls into question what we think faith is. We've put faith in this category of internal, personal, private. You can't see it, observe it. It's what I believe. But Jesus says that faith can actually be observed by the way we're living. Like their faith, these, these, these men, what are they doing that, that caused Jesus to see their faith? They, they've moved with compassion for their friend who is paralyzed, and they're carrying him to Jesus. Like they, they have this belief, right? It's not void of belief. They have this belief that, wait a second, our friend's body is broken, and wherever Jesus is, broken things seem to get fixed. And so let's, like, let's carry our friend to Jesus. And so their faith, it moves them to live differently, to respond differently. Faith, uh, throughout the scriptures, we, we're, we're confronted if our idea of faith is just about what we, we believe. James, uh, the brother of Jesus, right? He, he writes a letter and he says this, like, don't, don't tell me like you have faith just by the things you believe. Like, I'll show you my faith by what I do. Puts it into practice. The Old Testament, Abraham is called the father of faith. Why? Not because he believed certain things. It's because when God spoke to him, he started walking. He responded. And so Jesus sees their faith. He, he responds. That our faith, it makes a difference in how we actually move in this world. Faith, uh, it, isn't, it isn't just private. Now, here, here's one of the cool things. is we, Jesus calls us into a community of faith. Because sometimes, sometimes we're the person on the mat. Like sometimes we just don't, we don't have the strength to get to Jesus. Have you ever been there? Like maybe some of us are honestly, maybe we're, maybe we're there now. Like we, we have people, we have people in our church, maybe some of you are feeling that way right now, where it's just like, I am, 
I'm coming out of these patterns of living that have just, they've been my way of living for years, for decades. And I'm trying to sort of change that, and I'm trying to make it to Jesus, but I don't feel like I have what I need to get there. I'm that man on the mat. And, and honestly, sometimes I'm there. Like sometimes it's just like you're, you're just depleted, you're just broken, you're powerless, and you feel like that guy on the mat. And do you know what we need in those moments? We need people to carry us. Like, do you, know, do you know what you do when you don't have enough faith? You actually call somebody and you say, can I borrow some of yours? Like, you, you lean on people. You say, I need help. Like, I need you. I need you to carry me because I can't. And this is what the church does for each other. Sometimes we're the person on the mat and, and, and we need other people to carry us. And sometimes we are the people who can carry others. Sometimes we have the strength and we use our strength and we use our faith to actually pick each other up and to carry us, to carry someone else to Jesus. This is what the church does. We are in a community of faith. And so it's this cool picture of that. Now Jesus, uh, he says, when he saw their faith, he said to the man, so he, he sees the guy's faith and he says to the man who's on the mat, he says, take heart, or don't be afraid. And then he says, son. Why in the world does Jesus call him the son? Right? Is this like, you remember Foghorn Leghorn? You guys grew up watching commercials? Remember the, the, the chicken, right? A rooster? He's like, I'll say, I'll say, I'll say, listen here, son. Um, is that what Jesus is doing? That wasn't all that bad, was it? <laughs> kind of surprised myself there. Um, so, uh, is that what Jesus is doing? Like, if there was ever a picture of an authority figure, right, it, it's Foghorn Leghorn, right? He's like, just puffed out, like, refuses to, like, learn anything or take advice from anybody else. He's like, no, I got the answer. So, is that what Jesus is doing? No, I don't think so. What's Jesus, why does he call him son? It's the same reason when, when these women come to him who, who, who need healing, he looks at them and he says, daughter. It's because when we're hurting, when we're in pain, we feel isolated, we feel alone, we feel like we don't belong. It's Jesus' way of saying, you're included. You're a part of the family. You belong here. You, you are here. You, you, you're mine. You belong to me. It's this term of endearment, of, of compassion. Jesus says, son. And then he says these words, your sins are forgiven. Hold up a second. If you are the dude on the mat, or if you are one of the people who have carried your friend to Jesus, did you carry him to Jesus, or did you come to Jesus to have your sins forgiven? No. Why did you bring your friend to Jesus? To heal his body, right? I mean, you didn't bring him here. So if you're like the guy on the mat, it's like, Jesus, this is, this is great. Thank you for that whole sins forgiven thing. Could you do something about my body, right? This is... Um, Jesus has kind of thrown a curveball here. Why in the world does Jesus do this? Does he say your sins are forgiven? Now, um, is, the man, is the man in this story paralyzed because of his sin? I mean, I hope we'd all say no, right? Is he paralyzed because of his sin? No. Um, is sickness a result of sin? Well, like, no, the simple answer is no, it's not. The Bible is, is pretty clear on that. But the, if we really pick it apart, if we say what is the relationship between sickness and sin, it gets a little bit more complex than that. Because there are places in the Old Testament story, right, where people were, were acting out in rebellion and there was a punishment and the punishment was something got broken in their bodies. I mean, they, they had some sort of sickness 
that was a punishment to sort of turn them around because it was jeopardizing God's mission. Those stories are in the Bible, right? We could point to them. Um, how many of you know that our actions have consequences? So on a real practical level, um, if I eat a sleeve of Oreos and drink, you know, 60 ounces of name the pop for lunch every day, what's going to happen to my body over time? It's going to break down. Like, there, there are going to be consequences to the things that I am putting into my body. So our actions, I would consider that sin for, for me to, um, for, to destroy my body like that is sin, and there will be some consequences of that. Uh, on a bigger scale, for us, uh, the, the, the I grew up in northeastern Ohio, and the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. Did you know this? There, there, was a, there was a point in time when the Cuyahoga River was so polluted by industrial waste from the city of Cleveland that it actually caught on fire. The whole, the whole river did. Like, that's sin. It's sin for human beings to pollute the world like that, God's good creation, and, and to cause that kind of destruction to God's good world. That's sin. And we're going to, there are going to be consequences to that. It's going to bring some sickness. It's going to bring higher cancer rates and all those things. So we have to say there is and possibly can be some connection between sin and sickness in those ways, right? Everybody, are you with me on that? But here's the deal. Before we go too far into that, we have to say there's a whole book of Job in the Old Testament that the reason the book of Job is in the Bible is to tell us that the equation that reads, you sinned, now um, God has punished you, and you're sick, that equation does not work. The whole reason the book of Job is in the Bible is to say that that, that is not the way things work. He calls that all into question. Say, no, 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 Job is a perfectly righteous man, and yet he suffered. And, and so the whole, the whole worldview that says, no, 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 sickness and sin, they're, they're related, that, that it doesn't work. Furthermore, in, in John 9, Jesus uh, encounters this man who was born blind. He, he, he has this, this sickness from birth. And the people around him say, well, who sinned? Was it this man who like sinned in his mother's womb and caused this? Or did his parents sin and he's paying the consequences of it? They, they believe the equation has to work out. Because he's sick, somebody had to sin. And Jesus says, no. You need to get rid of that whole way of thinking. Um, Jesus says, that's the wrong question. Who sinned? And Jesus goes on and he says, you know what the right question is? Is how is God's power going to be displayed in this person? Anytime there's brokenness, anytime there's pain, we can look for God's redemptive movement in it. To say, how is God going to use it? How is he going to bring new creation? How is he going to restore? That's the right question. How is God going to move in this? Because God always will. So that's that whole sickness, sin thing. But Jesus, he says these words, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders uh, are furious, are, are absolutely furious about it. Now, why are they so angry? Because Jesus said these words. The reason they're so angry is because those words belong to the priest. Those words belonged to the priest who was given authority by God to pronounce your sins are forgiven. So if you, ha if you had sinned and you were living in Jesus' day, or before Jesus' day in the Old Testament, God had graciously provided a way for us to know our sins were forgiven. And here's how you did this. Like, so you, you steal your neighbor's donkey um, or your neighbor's cart, or you, you, you kind of mess with the scales a little bit as you were selling grain to give yourself a bit of an advantage over those who were buying it from you, or you, uh, you gossiped about your neighbor, you sinned. And so we've all sinned, right? And so we need forgiveness. Leviticus chapter 4 spells out what we do about it. Um, we, 
we take an animal, a female goat or, or lamb, and we, uh, we bring it to the temple. Now, here's a, here's a recreation of the temple in Jesus' day. So here's what we do. We, we line up. We bring this, uh, this, this perfect, spotless lamb or goat. We come into these main doors here in the temple. And then you see that next set of doors right in there. Somebody nod your head if you see what I'm talking about. Very good. Okay, so you go in those doors. Now, here's the thing. We've all showed up because we have sinned, right? And so we all are here sort of carry, carrying or, you know, leading, I don't know, however you get your lamb or goat to the, to the altar, to the temple. But we're all there. So here's the cool thing is you know I've sinned. Surprise! Eric's a sinner, right? And I know you've sinned because we've, we're all there and we all have our animal and we're all ready to make atonement for our sins. So what we do is we go into the door the priest greets us, and the priest is covered in blood, right? I mean, his, his garments were like white and clean when he started, but he's been doing this all day. It's like a butcher shop. And so uh, he, he's covered in blood, and immediately when the door opens, all of a sudden we realize our sin is costing something. Our sin ha- has real effects, and so we, we come in, the priest escorts us in, and we come over by the, there's an altar there right in the, in the middle and the priest takes us over to the altar. And here's what Leviticus 4 says is like the, the, the person who's there takes and they lay their hand on the animal and they actually slaughter the animal. Again, this like super visceral picture that my sin is not just between me and God. Like my sin hurts. Uh, it, it hurts me. It hurts the people around me. My sin, my, my stealing my neighbor's donkey or cart or my cheating on the scales or on my taxes, or my gossiping about my neighbors, it is contributing to the brokenness of this world. It's actually contributing to what makes the world messed up. I'm a part of that. And so um, here, as the, the life sort of drains out of this animal, what the priest will do is he'll take, some, he'll take the blood and he'll go over to the altar, and he'll, he'll put some on the altar, and then he'll pour the rest of the blood around the altar, and he'll take this lifeless animal and place it on the altar, and it will be consumed. Now, after all of this has happened, after we have blood on our hands and the priest has blood on his hands, the priest will turn around and will look at us and will speak the words, Your sins are forgiven. Is this good news? Yes. This is really good news. Like this is gracious and good to know that when you walk out of that building, you know exactly where you stand with God. Your sins have been atoned for. You are right with God. Your sins have been forgiven. This is a gracious gift from God. And here comes Jesus right into the middle of this whole situation with this man who, who is not sick because he's a sinner, but he's a sinner as much as everybody else is, who has this need for inner healing just like you and me, just like everybody lined up at the door. And Jesus waltzes right in, and he steps between this person and God, and he pronounces without any sacrifice, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. He speaks the words of the priest. He acts as if he has been authorized by God without any sacrifice, without any temple system to give forgiveness to sinners. And they are furious with him. Do you see why they're so angry with him? He's calling this whole system into question. He's saying this whole temple, this whole sacrificial system, it's served its purpose. And that 
system is done. Because why? Because this whole temple system was pointing forward to a time when God would actually come in the flesh and take away the sins of his people and invite them into a brand new way of life. And Jesus says the time is now. The time is now. God has come among us and he is represented in Jesus and he speaks on God's behalf. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Is this good news? So, this is why they're so angry with him. And Jesus, he, he goes on and he doesn't diffuse their anger. He says, so which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up, take your mat and go home? Which is easier to say of those two things? If you were going to visit me in the hospital and I'm laying in the hospital and I'm, I'm really, really sick and you were going to come in and you were going to say two things to me. One, hey, Eric, your sins are forgiven. And the other, Eric, get up, let's get out of here. Which one's easier to say? Your sins are exactly. Your sins are forgiven. Why? Because how do you know if it's true? Like, is there some place you go to, like, check to make sure your sins are forgiven? Like, no. But what happens if you say to me, Eric, let's get up, it's time to go, and it doesn't happen? That's really hard to say, right? I mean, it's really, you can prove it, and it's risky to be able to say that. And so Jesus, he, he's, like, calling into question. He says, you have all of this problem with me saying your sins are forgiven, and yet you've watched me heal, and you've watched me... Uh, you bring broken things together and you watch me calm a storm. But Jesus says, so that you know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to this man, get up, take your mat and go. And he gets up, he takes his mat and he goes home. It's as if they were saying to each other, who does this man think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, yeah, that's about right. You're forgiven. It's beautiful. Matthew's just painting this. Now, Matthew could have just said something like, hey, Jesus is the presence of God, but how boring would that be? He gives us this whole intricate, beautiful story of Jesus saying who this is. Now, this creates a bit of a a trilemma for us. Now, here's the the, C.S. Lewis's word, the trilemma. It's not a dilemma. It's not like you have two options. You've got to decide between the two. You actually have three options. We all have three options. And in hearing who Jesus says he is, he's speaking as if he was God. He's speaking as if he was the temple, this place where heaven and earth meet. He is taking that authority, which means he's either one of three things. He's either a lunatic, or he's a liar, or he is who he says he is. He's the Lord. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He creates this this trilemma for us. Um, We've all maybe experienced lunatics who think they're God. I've had, I've had plenty of conversations with, with folks like this, right, um, who, who really authentically think, think they're God. None of you in this room. Totally cool. Um, um, there have been people who have lied, who, who have manipulated people, who have led cults, and, you know, they, they lie, having people believe they're God's anointed so that they can lead people to their destruction. Is Jesus is either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And here's the problem, is like sometimes we, we're, we're, we settle for this, this place to say Jesus was a good teacher. He was, um, he was a sage, he was a prophet, he was a, a preacher of peace. I mean, that, that's who Jesus was. He was a great teacher, taught great ethics. But to say that means that we don't actually take Jesus seriously in his teaching. Because he's, leave, he's not leaving that option on the table for us. So we, we sort of all need to come to this place of saying, like, who, who is Jesus? If he's claiming to be God, is he one of these two, or is he the Lord of heaven, or is he the place where heaven meets earth? Is he the presence of God in flesh, and will I trust him when he looks at me and he declares on his authority, your sins are forgiven? Do you trust Jesus? 
to hear those words, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And to allow those words from Jesus, from the author of life, to speak deep into our souls, to heal those broken places, to bring us back to life, to invite us to a new kind of life in the world. Jesus, he uses his authority to move toward hurting people. He uses his authority to move toward the weak and the powerless, to, to speak words of compassion and tenderness to them. Will we do the same? Is that how we'll use our authority as a church? Because here's how the, Ma- the Gospel of Matthew ends. The whole Gospel of Matthew is about authority of Jesus, authority of Jesus. And do you know how the Gospel of Matthew ends? Do you know what he does? He says all this authority that God has given to Jesus, you know what Jesus does with it? He authorizes us to go in his name and continue his work. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Jesus authorizes us as the church, not us as individuals, but us as the church, the community of faith, to move into this world, to move toward the hurting, to move toward the broken, to bring healing in Jesus' name, to speak words of life, and to say on behalf of Jesus in the authority of Jesus, brothers, sister, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus authorizes us to represent him in the world. God, we are, are just amazed at you, Jesus. We're amazed at who you are. We're amazed at your, your, your authority and the way you use that authority. God, not like anything we have ever seen or experienced. Jesus, uh, we, we come to you in this moment because we trust as a church that you are Lord. We confess that you are Lord. You are Lord of heaven and earth. And we surrender our lives to you, Jesus. God, we ask that you would speak words of life and hope and peace and joy and healing deep into us. And God, that we would feel your authority, God, calling us as a church and sending us out into the world to be people who make disciples in your name, who baptize people, who, who, who teach them to obey your teaching, Jesus. Teach us to obey here and now. God, we we love you and we, we give you ourselves in Jesus' name.